This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattled bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Well, today we have Chris Trotter, a prominent political commentator who writes from the left column on the ODT and also has a blog and written a really good book on New Zealand's political history called No Left Turn. And we'll be talking about um, elections and uh, expectations and uh, surprises. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos. Good morning, Chris. It's really good to have you with us. Pleasure to be with you, Marvin. Would you talk about the prospects of the coming election and what that means for ordinary working-class New Zealanders? That includes most New Zealanders, doesn't it? Well, yes and no. There was a time when the industrial workforce of New Zealand um, approximated half the population. Yeah. Uh, but that's no longer the case. That's the industrial mostly, Yeah, mostly because... Uh, the industrial base in New Zealand was pretty much eliminated, um, with one or two exceptions, uh, back at the time of Rogernomics. Um, yeah. So the, the classic uh, working class uh, New Zealander, um, someone you know, who wears a blue collar, uh, works in a factory, um, that sort of uh, working class figure uh, really isn't um, part of our political scenery anymore. There are, of course, many, many uh, hundreds of thousands of working class people uh, in New Zealand, uh, but they tend to be found now in warehouses, in shops, uh, and uh, on construction sites and roading gangs and Not so on and, and so forth. So, so um, that working class, um, I mean, the, the other thing I think you have to say about it, uh, Marvin, is that it's it's not very politicized. Uh, in fact, I would argue that it's not really politicized at all, not like the working class of New Zealand was uh, back at the time of the first uh, Labour government in the 1930s. Then you had a working class that was very definitely politically mobilised. But even in the uh, 70s, it was more mobilised than now. Well, yes, certainly. Um, and perhaps the most famous example of, a, of a, a very assertive working class came in 1974 when the um, secretary of the, of the Drivers' Union uh, in Auckland, um, Bill Anderson, uh, was put in jail um, for contempt of court uh, because he refused to recognise uh, injunctions on industrial action, which was a very uh, pernicious um, exercise by anti-union people back in the day. Um, and um, his members turned out en masse, along with many other uh, workers, uh, marching up Queen Street, uh, ten abreast, thousands and thousands of them to the uh, to the courthouse, and the government of the day, which was a Labour government, uh, had to move very swiftly to calm things down. 
uh, and uh, the matter was was duly settled. But uh, I think that was well, that was one of the most assertive working class responses in my lifetime. Certainly, there were others, of course, to date. Um, stand of the of the watersiders in 1951, um, but that sort of working class, that that sort of self conscious. And uh, and willing to have a crack, working class uh, ceased to exist some time ago. I that think. was one of the great successes of Roger Douglas, wasn't it? Well, to be fair to um, Roger I Douglas, know it's, a lab- it's a national party. Uh, it that- was a national party that destroyed the unions. But it, um, Roger rather. Douglas enabled them. Well, no one put a gun to Bill Birch's head and said, "Pass this." Law, uh, or will shoot you. Um, they they didn't need any encouragement from Roger Douglas no. to have a crack at the unions. No, of course cer- not. Cer- certainly, um, they did not expect things to go as easily as they did. Um, Michael Laws, who is still in your neck of the woods, I think, uh, one of the regional councils down your way. Uh, he was working in Bill Birch's office uh, at the time as a young and up-and-coming National Party activist. Uh, and he told me years later that Bill Birch uh, was expecting to have to surrender upwards of a third of the clauses and most of the worst clauses of the Employment Contracts Bill as a result of what he assumed would be a massive fight back uh, by the trade union movement. And uh, he was probably right uh, because uh, there was huge activity on the streets. I remember being at the Regent Theatre. Yeah, yeah. I think I was in the same building at the same moment. And Uh, the people at the Regent Theatre would have been quite happy to go on strike on a... On the oh, Friday, yes. Yes, and they, if it they, stuck, they, go back on yes. on Friday. It was actually it. Ken Douglas who uh, prevented it. Well, took the words right out of my mouth, Martin. An old friend of ours. Yes, yes. Well, um, there were many instances, uh, both inside unions and uh, gatherings of many unions together. Uh, that voted overwhelmingly for a general strike, but the union bosses voted that down. Um, and in the end, Bill Birch uh, and the National Party government did not have to surrender even one of the clauses of the employment contracts bill. So that was really um, the night they drove old Dixie down, as it were, um, and the union movement has never been the same. Today, the union movement really is uh, a gathering of state sector unions, the largest being the PSA, but there are also the teachers, of course, and the nurses. Uh, and the um, largest private sector union, I think, is A2, which used to be called the Engineers Union, and there are one or two others. But the percentage of the private sector workforce, which is unionized, is now somewhere between 8 and 10%. Does this have anything to do with the fact that, is this one of the reasons we have one, a, quite a low-wage economy for, uh, for where we are in the world? Well, uh, what the National Party did with the Employment Contracts Bill and and then the Employment Contracts Act was that it enabled uh, employers uh, to maintain their profitability um, essentially by shifting um, the the balance away from um, uh, the people who took wages out of the business and uh, and giving it to the shareholders. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, the balance was quite clearly uh, in the workers' favor. Um, but after the Employment uh, Contracts Act came into force, um, the, the, the balance 
shifted decisively um, to the companies, to the employers, to the shareholders. Uh, and this enabled profitability to be maintained at the expense of productivity. Uh, and that has been one of the besetting sins of, of New Zealand, economically speaking, for many, many years, are very low um, productivity. And that is because at the moment when companies should have been investing um, in um, technology, particularly um, information technology and, and robotics and all the things made possible um, by the technological revolution of the late 20th century, um, they uh, weren't obliged to do so because they could just keep the wages down. They could, in, in effect, increase the rate of exploitation of their own workforce <laughs> rather than um, increase the productivity of their firms by reducing the number of workers and increasing um, the, the, the investment in technology. So it turned out to be to their own disadvantage, their privilege. Well, as so often happens in capitalist societies, there was a short-term advantage available to the capitalists of the day, which they duly seized. Um, but long-term, it was, as you say, a, a, a very bad idea. Um, because uh, a, a really effective trade union movement can be of enormous assistance to a capitalist country in the long term. And the Swedish trade unions are perhaps the best example of this. They used to engage in what they called solidaristic bargaining. Now, this involved increasing the, the wages of the workers at the lowest end of the pay scales. Um, while keeping the increases of those at the top fairly modest. Now, this had a very important effect on um, Swedish employers because it made their workers more expensive. It encouraged them to replace their workers with um, machines, with uh, computers, with robots, etc., etc. And Swedish productivity took off because it was cheaper to rely on machinery in the end uh, than it was to keep employing large numbers of workers. Now, of course, the, the beauty of the period we're talking about, which is the, the last quarter of the 20th century and the first quarter of this one, um, is that there were all sorts of other occupations which grew out of this um, second industrial revolution, or third, depending on what you're counting. But um, uh, it didn't really happen here in New Zealand, or, or if it did, it, it didn't happen to anything like the same extent. Uh, and so our productivity has remained low. We, as we have been discovering since COVID, are ridiculously dependent on unskilled and semi-skilled workers. Apparently, we can't pick our crops, we can't fix our roads, we can't staff our restaurants and hotels. Um, um, using New Zealand labor alone, we have to import it from the Pacific Islands, from the Philippines, from India, from the rest of the world in general. Um, and, you know, it is, it is just one of the great tragedies uh, that the anti-union position, which was part and parcel of the whole neoliberal project, uh, and we saw it, of course, under Margaret Thatcher in Britain and Ronald Reagan in the United States. I mean, they took out the unions as a real force politically and economically in society um, and patted themselves on the back and reaped the windfall profits uh, which came from driving down real wages. But long term, um, it left their societies in a very bad way. Um, the presence of a, of a strong um, trade union movement uh, was, was very much underestimated by the neoliberals. Uh, they were just so ideologically opposed to the idea of 
collectivism and uh, collective bargaining, collective anything really, um, that they couldn't see uh, any benefits um, coming from uh, the workforce being represented, the employers being represented, the state being represented uh, in the way that uh, uh, workplace relations um, were conducted. And of course New Zealand had had just that sort of system, tripartite system involving all three groups um, ever since the 1890s and had been the toast of the world for their progressive approach. But you know, all this has been long forgotten, Marvin. So it's been a long answer to your original question, but it's an important question to get settled because one of the reasons the Labour Party is so weak uh, and so uh, unwilling to really consider uh, the sorts of policies which would be of direct benefit to working class people is precisely because of Rogernomics, because of Bill Birch and the Employment Contracts Act, because of Ruth Richardson and the mother of all budgets, um, because the Labour Party split, uh, uh, and because those that continued um, to uh, remain in the Labour Party were averse to debate, averse to dissent, um, averse to uh, anything um, really which rocked the boat um, or upset the newspapers and the employers. Uh, and so we are where we are now um, with a, a Labour government that not only doesn't want to seem to do anything very much at all, but has proved over six years to be incapable of doing pretty much of anything <laughs> at all. I mean, all of its big plans have come to naught, whether you're talking about Kiwi Build or a massive um, rehousing program, thousands and thousands of state houses, which the government keeps on claiming it has built, but which those who know how to count um, <laughs> continually remind us, no, they actually haven't built that many. Um, they've hardly built any, in fact, and, um, uh, and, and the story goes on. Uh, but it is a very strange situation we face now of a Labour Party making a virtue out of its own inactivity, trying to prove that it is uh, a more fiscally responsible party than the National Party, which was never really the point as far as I can understand. Um, having looked back over New Zealand's history, that was never really the point of the Labour Party, but uh, apparently it is now. Well, were you surprised when um, the Minister of Finance and the Minister of Revenue wanted to change some of that and bring in a wealth tax and capital gains after the election? Well, uh, I wasn't entirely surprised because it's such a clever idea. Uh, and the National Party itself um, did something similar back in the time of John Key and Bill English as his finance minister. It's what's called a tax switch. In other words, you um, reduce taxes for some people by increasing taxes for others so that the result is neutral in terms of the amount that the state takes in in revenue. So the question, well, how are you going to pay for these tax cuts, Mr. Key or Mr. Hipkins, um, can be answered, well, we're paying for them by doing this and that. Um, and what uh, Grant Robertson and David Parker were planning was a tax switch. They were going to remove tax from the first $10,000 of income uh, and they were going to make up that shortfall in state revenue um, by imposing a wealth tax on the very, very wealthiest people. Now, David Parker had been very clever in, in regard to this whole plan because he had commissioned the IRD to do a study into who paid how much tax, and he um, studied the wealthiest of the wealthy, New Zealand is a handful of families um, who, uh, between them, controlled 
an almost obscene amount of wealth and found out that, that uh, they were paying, on average, about 9% of um, their uh, income in tax as opposed to the ordinary taxpayer who was paying 21% or thereabouts of uh, their income to the government. So this information had been released to the public and the public had responded as, as you might expect uh, with a certain amount of uh, fury. Um, and so... There was very little doubt in my mind uh, that uh, properly presented this tax switch would have been enormously popular and it would have put about $20 into the pockets of every single um, you know, New Zealand wage salary earner um, at a time when there's a lot of pressure on people's budgets. Uh, an extra $20 a week would have come in very handy indeed. And it was to be paid for by making these obscenely wealthy people, just a few hundred of them really, actually pay their fair share. Uh, and why Chris Hipkins canned it uh, is a mystery. Now, the word that came out, uh, and I'm not sure whether to believe this or not, but the word that came out after he had made his captain's call, as they call it in Australia and as we now call it in New Zealand, this kind of unilateral decision, I'm not sure, and this is something you know that would bear some investigation, I think. Was it a cabinet decision or was it a prime ministerial diktat? Because he wasn't even was, in this country. It's well, no, he wasn't. So it's difficult to understand how cabinet could have made the decision. A captain's call, as far as I know it, is about the Prime Minister announcing a policy without consulting um, his cabinet and essentially saying to his colleagues, you either back me on this or you sack me. Um, and they usually make it pretty clear that those are the options uh, by adding something like, this won't happen while I'm Prime Minister, which is exactly what Chris Hipkins said. Um, and what that means, you know, translated from political speak, what that means is, if you don't go along with this, you'll have to sack me as your leader, um, which is a big ask, you know, a few months out from a general election. So I'm not sure whether Cabinet, um, uh, either prior to the captain's call or subsequent to the captain's call, actually debated this and arrived at a decision, endorsed the leader's decision. I don't know. Um, it would be good to know, however, because uh, captain's calls are, are difficult to um, reconcile with New Zealand's constitution. You know, we are um, a, a country ruled by an executive committee, which we call the cabinet, uh, and it makes its decisions collectively. We, we are not ruled by um, an American president or a French president that has executive powers of their own. Um, so, yeah, captain's calls um, are a bit iffy, in my opinion, but anyway, the, the word that came out was that they had put this idea of a wealth tax in front of focus groups and, and it hadn't gone down well at all. Now, this is in spite of the fact that polling agencies had asked people about a wealth tax and found that over 50% of New Zealanders, 53, 54% of New Zealanders were in favour. So it must have been a very strange sort of focus group. Um, that uh, that didn't like the idea of um, a wealth tax. Maybe it now, included those families. Well, well, no, but you see, what what we don't really get told about focus groups is they're not like polls. Polls have to be a representative sample of the nation; otherwise, they don't work. Right? Unless you have the right proportion of citizens included in your sample when you're, when you're conducting a poll, your results will cease to be um, believable. So if, let's say, 51% of the population are female, uh, 
and only 23% of your sample are female, then any results you get from that poll are going to be essentially meaningless. Um, if 17% of the country identify as Maori and only 2% of the people in your sample identify as Maori, once again, your poll is going to be meaningless. Now, random, uh, in, uh, uh, random features are not equally applicable to focus groups. Focus groups can be much more tightly organized. You may want to know, for example, what uh, wage and salary earners um, whose incomes are above, shall we say, $80,000 per annum, um, 80000 and up, what do they make of a wealth tax? Now, you see, people earning 80000 and up uh, these days are pretty much your teachers and your nurses um, and your public servants. Uh, and so if you are talking to people earning that sort of money, then maybe the idea of a wealth tax didn't go down too well. But if you've got a focus group made up of people who are either on state benefits or earning less than thirty or $40,000 a year, then maybe that focus group would have been a lot more positive about, A, taking the tax off the first $10,000 of their income, and B, uh, paying for that with a wealth tax. We don't know who was sitting around the table in those focus groups, and we're very unlikely to know because the parties, to my knowledge, never release that sort of information. Uh, but that was the excuse. Oh, it focused grouped very badly. So the Prime Minister, you know, put the kibosh on it. But it was a serious enough move to cause um, David Parker to relinquish his revenue portfolio, which he made uh, it very clear to the public was being done because of the captain's call. And... Poor old Grant Robertson. I mean, this was the second one of his initiatives that Hipkins had cancelled. The first one was his social insurance scheme, whereby if you lost your job, you got 80% of your wage um, for a certain period of time uh, while you were looking for a new one. Very similar to schemes operating in Europe. Uh, and Grant had worked on this for years, literally. And it was one of the... Um, one of the things that went when uh, when Chippy was throwing out policy very very shortly after he became prime minister, and now Paul Grant, having worked on uh, this tax policy uh, with uh, David Parker, now this was thrown out as well. I mean, it is a measure of their loyalty, frankly, that um, that they're still in the cabinet. Uh, in other countries or in New Zealand um, uh, in earlier times, I really strongly suspect that both Robertson and Parker would have resigned from Cabinet in protest at what Chris Hipkins did. But as I said earlier, the Labour Party is not the Labour Party of old. Um, it, it is very averse uh, to um, internal dissent. Um, unless, of course, um, the party is led by David Cunliffe, in which case all hell breaks loose, the party leaks like a sieve, and um, Labour tumbles to uh, an historic defeat. But that's another story. Has this uh, captain's call done much for the Labour Party's popularity? What are the prospects of the next election? Oh, well... Uh, if you if you rely entirely on the Roy Morgan poll, which is um, Roy Morgan is an Australian company, um, but they poll in New Zealand as well, and they poll very well. Roy Morgan was the most accurate of the opinion polls in 2020. Um, they uh, are telling us that Labor's tumbled down to 26 percent which makes perfect sense to me, um, given what's happened. I mean, there are all those ministerial um, <laughs> malfunctions, uh, starting with Stuart Nash and ending with Kiritapu uh, Allen, um, which wouldn't have done any good. But if we had been talking about 
tax reform. Maybe tax reform might have been the thing that people were talking about. Well, exactly. And this is one of the great ironies, I think, of of the politics of the last few months. Um, precisely at the time, after Kerry Allen's um, late night uh, meltdown, um, uh, precisely at the moment, it would have been wonderful to launch a controversial, radical, redistributive tax policy in time for the election. Um, uh, it wasn't there because the guy who, who now needed it had um, cancelled it. Um, that it would certainly have got everybody talking um, about uh, taxes, about redistribution, about fairness in New Zealand society, about the obligations of the very wealthy to um, society as a whole. Would have would have been a, a wonderful conversation for a Labour government to have set in train, but he couldn't do it because of his captain's call. So um, now, I mean, it, it's even worse than that. Because the two parties that Labour would need to govern with, since it's it's nowhere near its polling of 2020 when it actually got 50% of the vote, um, the Greens and the Party Māori, both of them are committed to wealth taxes, um, and so their policies are being paid for largely out of wealth uh, taxes. Uh, so, by ruling out a wealth tax, uh, Chris Hippikins has essentially ruled out any kind of meaningful coalition agreement with the Greens and Te Party Māori. So, I mean, it's an even it's an even worse decision from from the perspective of um, MMP politics. Uh, it is it is astonishing and um, it, it, and baffling in a way because. The most obvious answer to the question, why did Chris Hipkins do that, is because Chris Hipkins is a very conservative politician, uh, a politician who uh, would not normally um, be found um, in a centre-left party, but who somehow ended up in one and has been going along for the ride uh, for many years now but whose actions when he is in a position to make the final decision really don't match the actions of a centre-left politician at all. Well, unfortunately, that when you look at the English-speaking Labour and Social Democratic Party, that's not too far out of line what some of them have done in the past. No, and, uh, well, I mean, I mentioned the fate of David Cunliffe before. Now, David Cunliffe was a man who um, had many faults. Um, and uh, I think, uh, in retrospect, uh, the degree of animosity uh, shown to him by his um, caucus colleagues uh, is, uh, in a way, uh, understandable. Um, but nevertheless, um, David Cunliffe won the leadership of the Labour Party Fair and Square. He put his ideas before the membership and he won handsomely. Uh, and the ideas that he floated were ideas to do with moving on past neoliberalism into something more resembling a Labour Party um, ideological stance. Now... What happened to him, I think, was instructive of anybody who may have been thinking of doing the same thing. Oh, uh, because Jeremy Corbyn in England found the same thing. Well, 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 yes, I was just about to move on to that, um, Marvin. Um, that happened here in New Zealand, and of course, with even uh, greater force, quite outrageous force, it, it happened uh, to Jeremy Corbyn. I don't know if people can remember um, um, that far back. Um, people's political memory is pretty short these days. But very shortly after he became leader of the Labour Party, um, the national security community of the United Kingdom and its senior army officers openly talked about staging a coup 
were he to be elected prime minister. Now, just, you know, think about that for a minute or two. There was someone who was elected by the members of the Labour Party. Uh, one person, one vote. Uh, not the electoral college we have here with a waiting for course and waiting for the unions and the rest goes to the members. <clears throat> Jeremy Corbyn was elected one person, one vote. Can't say fairer than that. And the moment he was elected, you know, the powers that be, uh, what some people these days call the deep state, of the United Kingdom, the permanent government of the United Kingdom, was making it very clear that if the people of the United Kingdom were irresponsible enough to elect such a man as their prime minister, then those who had uh, a more sensible grasp of reality would remove him, um, which is a complete negation of democracy. But there we are. It, it made a, a, a small splash, it's fair to say, at the time these threats emerged. But then it was just forgotten. And then suddenly the BBC and the Guardian newspaper, along with all the tabloids, started accusing Jeremy Corbyn of anti-Semitism. And apparently the, the Labour Party in Britain was full of anti-Semites. And this was terrible. And something had to be done. Uh, and, of course, um, the rest is history. However, it must be said that if Jeremy Corbyn had taken a firm stand on Brexit, particularly if he had stood with the bulk of his voters, working-class voters, and um, supported uh, leaving the EU, um, the, the result might have been very different. The fact that Labour was neither for nor against, it seemed, uh, Brexit meant that uh, a populist like Boris Johnson could come in and knock me, down the red wall. Yeah, It seemed to me a, a strong stand either way would be better than the, not taking any kind of stand. Well, yes, yes. So the Bible has something about, um, you know, <laughs> uh, blowing hot and cold with the same breath. Yeah. Well... I'm going to play a song now. It's uh, by Billy Bragg, The World Turned Upside Down. And then we'll come oh, very good choice. Okay. In 1649, St. George's Hill, a ragged band they called the diggers came to show the people's will. They defied the landlords, they defied the laws. They were the Reclaiming what was theirs We come in peace, they said to dig and sow We come to work the lands in common And to make the waste ground grow This earth divided, we will make hope So it shall be a common treasury for all And a sin of property, we do disdain No man has any right to buy and sell the earth For private gain by theft and murder now everywhere the walls rise up at their command They made the laws to shine us well The clergy dazzle us with heaven or they damn us into hell We will not worship the God they serve The God of greed who feeds the rich while poor folks starve We work, we eat together, we need no swords Pirate to the Lord, still we are free, though we are poor. Ah, you dig us all, stand up for glory, stand up now, stand up now, stand up now. The orders came They sent the hired men and troopers To wipe out the diggers' claim Tear down their cottages And destroy their corn They were dispersed But still the vision lingers on Are you poor, take courage You rich, take care This earth was made a common treasury For everyone to share all things in common 
We're talking with Chris Trotter about the election and about the uh, economic and political situation in New Zealand and also other countries. Uh, you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz, then going to podcast, then going to Community or Chaos. Chris, um, the actual Morgan poll also showed some interesting things about other political parties, didn't it? Well, yes. Yes, the Roy Morgan poll showed Party Māori at 7% uh, or 6% in the latest one. I can't remember which. But anyway, over the 5% MMP threshold, which would have given it, um, I think if it was 7%, something like 9 MPs. Uh, This is a real um, potential breakthrough uh, for the Māori Party uh, and would make um, quite a difference to our politics, I think, regardless of whether Labour or National won. Uh, it is fair to say that the polls conducted in New Zealand show Labour doing a little better than 26%. Um, it shows them still in the 30s, <coughs> excuse me, which is quite remarkable. Um, uh, but they too, the New Zealand polls also show the minor parties doing very well. Uh, it has been a long time since the two main parties between them accounted uh, for less than 70% uh, of the party vote. Uh, If that's the way it goes, then um, it will be a very, very interesting uh, election. At the moment, the bulk of that uh, minor party vote is going to act. Uh, Of course, is to the right of the National Party on most issues. they are polling between 12-15%. Um, so they have the lion's share of the minor party vote. Uh, the Greens should be doing better than they are, but uh, they are not for a whole host of reasons. The Maori Party is doing much better than people thought, and uh, Winston Peters shows every sign of once again cresting the 5% threshold and returning to Parliament with at least six seats. Now, uh, the situation uh, is really far more tenuous than you would ever believe listening to the political analysis of uh, the uh, networks or, or organizations uh, who commissioned the polls because of course if you pay all that money for an opinion poll and they're not cheap by any means you really want to play up your opinion poll and you want to make it sound as dramatic as you possibly can but um, the simple fact of the matter is that just a sliver of um, uh, the vote for one party or another going elsewhere can change the entire calculation. Um, The um, conservative uh, political columnist, um, uh, Matthew Hooten, has has done quite a bit of work on this. And he shows that, you know, if Nationals' vote is just uh, 1 or 2% less than the polls' uh, habitat, or if... New Zealand's first vote is just 1% or 2% more than the polls have it at. Um, the whole calculation of um, the, the general election um, has to be recast. Um, it really is a very tight, tight race between the centre-left block and the centre-right block. Um, so much so that a very, very small increase or a very, very small decrease on one side of the um, political divide or the other um, will change the result uh, of of the election. So it's a very, very tight race. Um, 
One of the things which the Roy Morgan poll may be indicating in terms of the size of the Māori Party vote is that people who hitherto haven't been very interested in politics and certainly haven't uh, been casting votes uh, in the general election, in other words, uh, these are abstainers or non-voters, may be crossing over uh, um, into the I intend to vote in the general election uh, category. Uh, in other words, the number of people altogether who will be voting may be increasing. Now, this would once again really upset the apple cart because what most of our political parties do is practice um, the politics of subtraction. In other words, the aim is to take a block of voters from your opponents and bring them over to your side. So you subtract from your political opponents and you add them to your to your side. Um, what the politics of addition is all about is that you take people from non-vote and you add them to the voting public. That's more so in line with a common good, isn't it? Well, I mean, that's the way um, democracy is supposed to be. And, of course, the Australians make that much more a feature um, of their politics uh, because they have compulsory voting in Australia. So you have to vote. Now, it doesn't mean that 100% of Australians vote, but um, it's, it's almost always up in the 90%. Now, the last time New Zealand... Uh, 90% of registered voters voted in New Zealand, I think, was in 1984. And I think from memory it was about 93% um, of registered voters cast their votes in 1984. Very, very, very good turnout for a voluntary system. Um, but in Australia it's always higher. And of course... It does really change the calculations because if more and more people are voting, then you've got to ask yourself, well, where are these people coming from? Uh, because well-educated people, people earning a lot of money, people with a lot of property, they are very, very likely to vote in elections. They have something to lose, <laughs> so they vote to keep what they have. If you're increasing the number of people voting uh, altogether, there's a very strong chance that the people who are coming into play are the poorest people, the most marginalized people, the people who couldn't see any point in voting in the past because, you know, politicians always win. And what may be happening with the Maori Party is that um, the policies and the, the general demeanor of um, the Māori Party's parliamentary uh, duo uh, may be catching the attention of people who normally wouldn't vote. Uh, and uh, they may be making a very you know, important decision in their own minds. Look, this time I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote for the Māori Party. Um, because I really like what they're saying, and, and they seem to be really getting up the noses of the powers that be, and that's always a good reason to vote as well. Um, so if these people come across, then they're likely to be coming across um, from the left, not from the right. Uh, so the calculations begin to unravel. Uh, if a large number of people come from um, the left and, and join um, the rest of the country in voting. Uh, because what people always used to say was, if you get a low turnout, then it favours the National Party. If you get a high turnout, then it favours the Labour Party. The more people who vote, the better the chances of the left. That that was sort of one of the rules of political science. Things have changed dramatically over the years, as we were discussing earlier, but I think that is still a reasonably accurate uh, rule of thumb, that if there is a very big turnout, bigger than usual, 
it tends to favour the centre-left. Uh, if it's a very low turnout, it tends to favour the centre-right. One thing that occurs to me about all this is that the centre conservative or just center has been all about politics as it is a politics of a stat a static change no change or very little change <laughs> yet we think we can stop change but we can't stop change because we can't chop climate change we can't necessarily stop a financial bust so change will happen. It's just how prepared we are for it. Well, yes, looked at from a distance. Uh, <laughs> that is incontrovertible. But um, but people tend to vote uh, for the next three years. Well, no, 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 it's not just that. They tend to vote in what they perceive to be their own interests. They seldom vote you know, for the common good. Um, because society is is not homogeneous. I mean, there are people who are wealthier than others. There are people who are a different race from others. Uh, there are all kinds of divisions uh, in our society. And um, democracy uh, is not about an undifferentiated people all voting the same way. Um, it's about a whole lot of of groups with different interests voting for those interests and then somehow the political system having to work out which of those groups or which combination of those groups um, gets to call the shots for the next few years. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a very messy system and uh, it doesn't always rebound to the nation's advantage. I mean, when John Key was Prime Minister, he attracted enormous levels of support, both for the National Party and for himself. Um, nationals' vote actually went up from election to election, which you know defies the laws of political gravity. Um, but John Key's government uh, basically stopped spending on infrastructure. It stopped spending on housing. It stopped spending on just about everything. So that when Labour took power in 2017, um, New Zealand was a very ramshackle edifice indeed. And and Labour itself, um, although I think it was well-meaning, um, hasn't been able to do that much to fix it. Um, so the, the national interest Right, national with a small N, not the National Party. The national interest really dictated political parties committed to rebuilding New Zealand's infrastructure, building you know thousands of houses. That that was what New Zealand needed. That's what New Zealand society needed, because most of the things that are wrong with New Zealand can be traced back to people not having um, secure, warm homes to live in. Um, but uh, democracy did not deliver for the national interest. It, it delivered for the national <laughs> with okay. a capital N interest. Well, thanks a lot for coming on board, Chris, and we'll talk. Always a pleasure, soon. Marvin. Always a pleasure. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.